0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. So now let's turn over to First or Second Samuel. Sorry, Second Samuel, chapter twenty-one. 2 Samuel chapter 21, and uh, a little bit of review before we read uh, this passage. Uh, First of all, you remember that we're getting toward the end of David's reign, right? And so we only have a few more chapters in 2 Samuel, and then we move on to 1 Kings, and um, right there at the beginning of 1 Kings, Solomon is anointed the king, and so... We, um, we're getting to the end of his reign. In fact, um, so, so all the rebellions have been put down, Absalom and Sheba. There remain divisions in Israel because of all these revolts and, and risings uh, up. But um, the, the end part of 2 Samuel... Some say that 21 through 24 is is an appendix uh, because it it seems that they're uh, not in chronological order with the rest of the book. Uh, You look at the verse we're going to look at in uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. So it doesn't give any specific time. It doesn't say that it followed the Sheba's revolt or anything like that. And so this may be that it, it happened elsewhere, but the appendix would then function as, um, you know, we're seeing a view of the kingdom as ordered by David. We're seeing the end results of, of what he has done. And so uh, it's to pound home some of the themes that we've uh, seen in the book. Um, another point of, of review before we read it. We're going to be reading about uh, the Gibeonites. and the Gibeonites, you remember, we have to go back to Joshua to read about the Gibeonites. Joshua, uh, the Gibeonites were the, the people who lived in the land who, who faked that they came from a long way away and they had they had the shoes that were worn out. and so they they, uh, they faked uh, faked out the Israelites, the Israelites, didn't seek the Lord, and they made a covenant with the Gibeonites, and then it was found out that they were indeed uh, people who lived on the land that, they were, that the Israelites were supposed to destroy. And, and yet because they made that covenant, they um, determined not to put them to death, uh, but they became hewers of wood and drawers of water. They became slaves uh, to the Israelites. Um, but covenanted slaves, they were to be protected. And so you remember that. You can go back to Joshua 9 and read uh, about that. And so i we're actually going to focus on one verse here because there's something in it that I think is appropriate for us to be thinking on. And it will take uh, the remainder of the time that I have. So this is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. First Or 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. This is the word of the Lord. So Saul, we learn here, broke covenant. And he, he determined at some point in his reign, we don't actually read about this in Scripture. We don't get any indication of when this happened, no description. At some point, those Gibeonites uh, seemed to him uh, not welcome in his land, even though Israel had covenanted with them. <clears throat> and so he got patriotic, <clears throat> perhaps, and determined that he would uh, take them out and put them to death. We don't, again, we don't know when this happened. We don't read of these actions anywhere else in Scripture. Um, we only learn about it here. But <clears throat> here's here's the significant point: the Lord saw it and remembered. The Lord saw what Saul had done to the Gibeonites, and he remembered that. He didn't forget it. So because of those actions of Saul in the past, God brings famine, it says, in the days of David for three years. Saul's out of the picture. Uh, David's reign has been going on. There's something later in the text that may indicate that this happened um, after David had dealt with Mephibosheth. And so, um, so the, um, but there, there's, there's nothing else there, but God brings this famine during the days of David because he remembered what Saul had done to the Gideonites, uh, Gibeonites. now it's a significant thing for the Lord to remember one because it was Israel not it was Israel breaking promises and breaking promises is a significant issue breaking covenant once you have made covenants um, unless they're sort of founded on rash vows the covenant should be kept even when it's painful right and so God sees and remembers the unrighteous deeds, I would say, of Saul, but God sees and remembers the unrighteous deeds of not just individuals, but of whole nations. Right? He... he, Now, what's wonderful and what's merciful to David is when David goes to him, David goes to the Lord, he sought the presence of Yahweh, it says, and God who didn't have to reveal this to him, could have left him questioning why there was a famine. God tells him why. He gives him a specific reason why there was famine in the land. It's for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death, right? And so uh, this general concept that God remembers the sins of his people. God remembers these broken covenants. God remembers, God sees and remembers uh, the wicked deeds of nations. And in a sense, he's forbearing, but his forbearance at a point runs out. And, and he judges Peoples for those actions and he's not and God is not bothered by the fact that this was Saul's sin and yet David is the one who is punished and the people of Israel are the ones who are punished right the the sin of the leader of Israel has now led to the suffering of the people down the road and you just, we could go through scripture, we could find example after example after example of God remembering sins and bringing judgment upon people. All right? think of Cain and Abel. Think of Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel and God goes to him and God says to, to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Right, God saw that. God knew of that, and God, you know, even though it may have happened momentarily before that, but that blood of Abel was crying out from the ground, and was uh, was coming before the Lord. And of course, Cain is punished, and Cain does not like his punishment. Cain. Uh, believes that his punishment is too great, and God even in his punishment is merciful and that he doesn't uh, gives him a mark so that he uh, will not be killed now there are other examples of of God remembering i mean you could think of the whole work of the prophets the whole work of of all the prophets of Israel was to was to remind the people that they had turned away from the Lord and they needed to turn back to the Lord right And so it was a it was rehearsing the, the sins of Israel in the past. Jeremiah 32 32:26 uh, gives us an example of God seeing and remembering and' it's, uh, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city will enter and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs, and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Now there's the sin that God saw, and he's remembering it. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day so that it should be removed from before my face because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah which they have done to provoke me to anger they their kings their leaders their priests their prophets the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem they have turned their back to me and not their face though i taught them teaching again and again that they would not listen they would not listen and receive instruction But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And one more verse. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands, right? It goes on from there and talks about, again, mercy at the heels of God's judgment. But nonetheless, the Chaldeans are coming against Israel because God has remembered and seen and now is judging their sins, right? And their appropriate response would have been repentance, You think of Jonah, and what's interesting about Jonah is Jonah's not dealing with Israel. Jonah's dealing with Nineveh. Jonah's dealing with a pagan nation, um, Babylon, right? But the first verse of Jonah says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son the, uh, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God sees their wickedness. God sends a prophet to them. And the prophet is to announce that judgment is coming, so repent. Um, Skipping backwards, you could think of Jericho. Uh, Joshua 6.26 says, Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, uh, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up. So this is after all the events of Jericho have taken place. But cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundations. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So you skip forward many years ahead in 1 Kings 16. And God still remembers that curse that was pronounced upon that city. 1 Kings 16.34 In his days, Hiel. The Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Right? So there's God remembering this curse. And then bringing that curse to bear on somebody who went ahead with the rebuilding of Jericho against that prophecy. God remembers, God sees, and God judges um, what he has uh, foreseen and what he sees. Uh, think of this, the fact that scripture says sins of the fathers are visited upon the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations of those of the wicked. The sins of the fathers um, are visited upon the children and the children will bear the uh, burden of those sins and the weight of those sins. Uh, We could go to Obadiah, the the descendants of Esau, right? The the letter uh, Obadiah prophesied to Edom, which are the descendants of Esau. And it says in verse 10 of Obadiah, this is God remembering. This is God pronouncing a, a judgment upon Esau, even these m- many hundreds of years later. It says in verse 10, "Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever." Right. So there's God remembering the violence that Esau had um, had provoked against Jacob, and remembering it. And Obadiah many many hundreds of years later, prophesying that they would be cut off uh, because of that sin. Now, what's my point in all of this? My point in all of this, I think, is, is this. And the point I want to get across tonight is this. We have to have a view of history that is founded on the premise that God is active in it. That seems like a really simple thing to say, and it seems, you know, it seems obvious. I don't think any of us would deny that, but it's very easy for us to get just caught up in a materialistic view of the world or an evolutionary view of the world that um, events happen randomly, and there's just causes and effects, and But there's no no sovereign God over everything. In fact, that's what things appear, and at times we just don't understand. Um, And we forget that God superintends everything. So nothing happens in history that that, um, God is not actively causing to happen. What happens to the nations of the world is not just a string of events or a string of causes and effects but it is a series of the providential actions of a God who sees and remembers. It's a series of providential actions of a God who sees and remembers. Question 11 of the Shorter Catechism, what are God's works of providence? The answer, which hopefully some of our children could uh, quickly give, question 11, what are God's works of providence? The answer is God's works of providence are his most holy, wise and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. right? And so God God is his providence is that that government that God has over every action that ever happens in history. Now, <clears throat> to bring it to bring it to um, some application, to bring it to, uh, you know, to, to make us think of this specifically and less abstractly. Does God remember all the injustices of our nation? Does God remember and see? Well, of course, the answer is yes, God remembers all the injustices of our nation. Does God remember all the injustices of Germany? Does God remember all the injustices of China, of Russia, of Israel, of Palestine? You know, does God God remember these things? Did he see them? Did he uh, providentially govern them? Well, the answer is yes, he does. And does he afflict those nations as he did Israel for the sins of Saul as king? Yes, he does he does. He remembers, he sees, and he brings judgment, right? Just as Saul sinned, God saw and remembered, and David suffered three years of famine for, for the murder that Saul had committed. <clears throat> does God see and remember the billions? And I'm not just talking about the United States and talking about beyond the United States to the world. Does God see and remember the billions of deaths of the image bearers that he created? Does God see and remember that? In this century alone, there have been billions of deaths due to Abortion. Might we expect that God would humble us, let's say, by a virus or simply even by the fear of a virus? Might we expect that God would would stifle a nation or a world's economy because of him seeing and remembering the billions of children who have been slaughtered in the womb. Well, it seems almost foolish to say to say this. Um, his response, in many ways, um, has not been appropriate to the sin. He has not repaid us according to our sins, right? And yet, it is without a doubt um, the fact that God sees and remembers. And his judgments do come in this life. Isaiah 45 verse 7 says, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. Right? I am the Lord who does all these things. I cause well-being. I cause things to go well. I cause the... uh, I cause the nourishment and food to rise up out of the ground, and I also create calamity, it says. Uh, the nations' war and the um, economies' collapse, and God is uh, providential over all those things. Jeremiah 18. 8 says if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it and uh, I mean I want to turn to that passage in Jeremiah this is Jeremiah 18 let me read that from verse 5 Jeremiah eighteen five. then the word of the Lord came to me to Jeremiah saying can I not O house of Israel deal with you as the potter does declares the Lord behold like the clay in the potter's hand, so, you, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to, to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or a kingdom or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds." Right? So God looks at Israel over the course of their history, and they've wickedly spurned him. And now he says, I've seen, I remember, and judgment comes, repent, repent. So is, is COVID-19 what is due to us for killing Civilians in World War II. Is COVID-19 what is due to us for 60 million abortions? Is COVID-19 what is due for us for for denying that God, for refusing to celebrate that God made us male and female? Well, of course it is. Of course it is, and much worse is actually our due for rejecting God and his law. And and you think perhaps COVID-19 is just a warning that we might turn and, and that there is worse coming. That the forbearance of God for the blood that this world has shed is running out. So, what we see happening around us is not simply, and and this is another point I want to get across, what we see happening around us in the world today is not just about epidemiology, it's not just about infectious disease, it's not about statistics, it's not about government overreach, it's not about constitutional law, it's not about political science, um, it's not about your interpretation of the American Constitution. The, the events of the world are God's providential discipline of a world filled with sinful people. God sees and, and remembers. God sees and he remembers. Uh, Luke, we could turn to Jesus' words, Luke 13, 1-5. Um, through 5. Now, on that same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower and Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right? In that passage, what, what, what the men who came to Jesus were doing, what they were doing is asserting their righteousness and saying, look at these wicked people, look what happened to them. Right and and Jesus' response is, look, unless you likewise you know repent, you'll perish as well. And so we like to assert our righteousness, particularly as the American nation, the the exceptionalism of the American nation, and because we think we are righteous, we don't believe bad things will happen to us. But Jesus here steps, in, you know. Stops us in our tracks. Um, Were those who had the tragedy befall them worse than the rest of you all? No, all have sinned and fallen short. But the summary is of Jesus' statement unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You and we are not exceptional. We are not exceptional as a nation unless we repent. Right? then we are exceptional. Any nation that repents before God is exceptional. But any p- nation that doesn't is not exceptional in any way. Um, it, is, it, it is only exceptional in repentance. Then God, in that situation, can relent concerning the calamity he planned to, to bring on us. Do we... Am I overreaching? Am I recasting God here as something that the scriptures don't lay out? Am I making too much of the fact that God punishes sin? That God is a judge? That God is, as our passage in Hebrews 12 said, he's a consuming fire? Am I, is it too much for me to say that God is angry at the world because of the bloodshed? of innocent children. Well, I don't think it is overstatement, and honestly, I'm scandalized that the church isn't calling that this isn't the predominant voice of the church today as the whole world faces a fearful kind of judgment. Whether that judgment is coming through pandemic or whether it's just God giving us over to the fear of a pandemic, right? Do we hear Christians saying things like this in response to a pandemic? Not many, right? I hear Christians calling for um, opening stores. I hear Christians calling for opening economies. I hear Uh, Christians talking about the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. I I hear, um, I see Christians teaming up with militant libertarians to storm state houses in order to um, get, to assert freedoms, right? I hear statistics. I hear, uh, I hear epidemiological insights coming from Christians but very little about God's providence and his call for the nations of this earth to repent. And and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thinking about our freedoms and our economy and, and all those things. I think scripture speaks to those things. I think it's important that that we bring scripture to bear in every part of life. And so, but unless our first message as Christ's church is, repent, I think we, we are simply revealing our reliance upon our own wisdom as much as the statist relies on his own wisdom. A reliance on the intercession of the lesser magistrates can easily become a different sort of statism. And that reveals our hearts' willingness to step back, to to stop, you know, contriving for solutions and to repent in the face of God's warnings, right? Why isn't it that we aren't saying we must repent? We must repent as a people. Rather, what we're saying is when are the lesser magistrates going to step up and protect us? That's statism. If we don't have at the beginning of this a view of God's providence, a view that God sees and remembers and judges his people and the the nations of the world. Uh, Watson, Watson says afflictions are medicinal, right? Afflictions are medicinal. And it seems like this affliction, whether we want to define this as a as a a medical affliction or an economic affliction, it's like we're not taking the medicine as the church. Watson, in his book, All Things for God, says, Affliction teaches what sin is. In the word preached, we hear what a dreadful thing sin is, that it is both defiling and damning, but we fear it no more than a painted lion. Therefore, God lets loose affliction, and then we feel sin bitter in the fruit of it. A sickbed often teaches more than a sermon. We can see the ugly visage of sin in the glass of affliction. Affliction teaches us to know ourselves. God makes us know affliction that we may better ourselves. We see that corruption in our hearts in the time of affliction, which we would not believe was there, right? We, and, and that is the purpose of God afflicting, particularly his people and his sons, right? Is that they might see the corruption of their hearts and turn and repent. And so I, I would say, I mean, I have been I, I have been greatly disappointed by the response of the Reformed Church to this pandemic. I've been greatly disappointed by my own response. I've been greatly disappointed by the response of some in our church, uh, to, to what's going on. Um, are we willing to stop getting breathless about, you know, whether mandating face masks is an invasion of our privacy and do the first thing, which is to ask what God is doing through recent events. What is God doing? Can we drop pragmatics for a moment and have a sense of divine providence? Have a sense that God is at work here. Thomas Boston, uh, another one of those old Puritans, said, Whoever would walk with God must be due observers of the word and providence of God, for by these, in a special manner, he manifests himself to his people." In the one, in the word, we see what he says. In the other, in his providence, what he does. These are the two books that every student of holiness ought to be much conversant in. It is our duty to observe the work of God. It's our duty to observe the work of God. And yet, two weeks into a government response, we all became constitutional scholars. And stopped seeking the Lord. Stopped seeking to understand why it is that he was doing this. Stopped seeking why he would take jobs away from millions of people. Why he would make it difficult for us to get food. In the United States, difficult to get food. Unimaginable, right? All of this... And, and so all of this meditation comes from this one verse where we learn why God afflicted Israel with a famine. Saul sinned. Israel was afflicted. Right? And, and remember what David did. Remember David's response back there in Second Samuel 21. Right? Does, does he blog about irrigation systems? Well, no. Um, does he think about how he can use the present crisis to expand state power like Joseph did? Does he become an instant expert on dry climates because of a three-year famine? Well, perhaps he had to do some of those things as the king. Right, because he had actual responsibility over the civics of this nation. And, and so he actually had maybe to do something about those things. But he first inquires of the Lord. right? David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord was merciful to him and said, It's for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. David sought the presence of the Lord. How many of us have prayed... As much, or even a quarter as much, as we have uh, approached our days politically. Have we asked God why? Do we care to know why? Or are we just mechanical in our view of history? God somehow is distant and has let things go as they're going And so it's left up to us to figure out how to correct these scourges. Were God, through some extraordinary means, able to make it clear to us, as if he hasn't, that he was calling us to repentance, would we even have a grid to understand such a situation? Would we have right? A sense. Would we have a sense that God sees and remembers and warns mankind from heaven? Would we even have a sense of that? Or have we just become materialistic? Or would we receive that news saying uh, that's that's really interesting. God is causing a pandemic and fear to grip the world because we've slaughtered babies. Um, And then we just go back to stockpiling guns and ammo and food and money and gold and silver, thinking that those things will save us. You know, some may trust in chariots and some may trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. I'm not saying we shouldn't think through constitutional law or infectious disease or quarantines or economics. Christians are the best in all of those fields and always have been. But what I am saying is that there should be a first concern among Christians That is to know and acknowledge God's will in everything. Know and acknowledge and study God's providence so that we might be right before him. John Murray, in a little little short book called Behind a Frowning Providence, he's trying to come to grips with why there, why God afflicts us, why there are difficulties in this life. And he says, people are usually more anxious to get rid of the problem than they are to find the purpose of God in it. Affliction, says Matthew Henry, are continued no longer till they have done their work, right? And God's work is... In affliction is to bring us to repentance and reliance upon him. As those who know that their names are written in the book of life, why are we not saying to people, here's the meaning of what's going on. Man's sin, our nation's sin is unending. And unless you repent and trust in God's son, you will likewise perish. There is a way of escape in Jesus Christ. And when you love him, you will find that you can lose your grip on this life. You can lose your grip on having 40 more years. You can lose your grip on all of that. So, so dear brothers and sisters, let me wrap this up and just say, let's make it our goal during these days to inquire of the Lord and to remember that his providence is real, it's good, it's perfect. He is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. The one forming lights and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so let's, let's think on the providence of God. Let's think about the question of why is he doing this. Let's cry out to him and ask him why is he doing this. And let's lead our nation and the nations of the world and our neighbors in repentance as we think about it. As we think about what our own sins deserve and the mercy of God we have in Jesus Christ that has removed those sins from us as far as the east is from west. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign control of all things that come to pass. Father, I ask that you would forgive your church for being caught up in the things of the world and not going to you to inquire of you. Oh Lord, I, I pray that we would do so, that we would do so individually, that we would do so as a church, that we would do so as the churches of a nation that we would do so as your church in this world. And Father, that we would be bold then to say it's because of the gross sins of our nations that God's judgment is coming. And we would call people to turn and find a rock of refuge in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be our first task as Christians. And then after that, we can get to rebuilding a nation and an economy. Father, help us in this task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.